Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Connecting you to the biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. in our own fantasy land. It's episode 251 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham. So happy to be talking about comics once again this week. Yeah, we're going to be talking about some TCA stuff that happened for the big winter press tour. But how about talking about Aftershock Comics, a really cool new fantasy series actually called Oberon that just came out this week. Going to be talking to writer and creator Ryan Parrott about the series and kind of try and get in-depth in something that's Really, really cool if you've been added to your poll box yet. You might want to think about doing that, and you might actually be more apt to do that once you hear from Ryan, right? So we'll get to it and start with comics, as far as reviews are concerned, anyway. It's what we're reading next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. My name is uh, Liam Sharp. I draw Wonder Woman. I co-founded Mayfire, and I'm a dear and close friend of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Time to hit the power button on the laptop or the tablet. Maybe even slide out that long box, whatever you're reading on. It's time for what we're reading. And it's time for the Female Furies to get their spotlight. Issue 1 out this week from DC. Cecil Kesselchini on the writing and Adriana Mello on the art. Hi-Fi with the colors and Carlos M. Managual on the letters. Mitch Garrett's, by the way, awesome cover for this. Now, Granny Goodness actually trains this group. I should mention that this is pretty much all happening on Apocalypse. Now, here's what the two the team consists of. It's Ariely, and we also have Big Barda, Mad Harriet, Stompa, and Bernadette. Now they're in an they're an elite fighting team basically of women in Darkseid's army in the Eternal War. Now I I gotta just say that you even get to see Darkseid's rise to power in this and how it happened in the very early stages of it. It turns out Darkseid wasn't really paying close enough attention to what actually happened. And goodness has been pretty much been paying for it ever since. Well, and another decision that she made as well. But this is a spoiler for your review, so I'm not going to get into that with you right now. Now, this group is simply not taken seriously by men at all. I mean, you get to see their training. You get to see how elite they are at fighting. But man, there is plenty of sexism going on here, both verbally and physically, throughout this book. It gets to the point where, as you're reading it, it gets more and more frustrating as you go. And I mean, obviously this is not okay, but then you realize this is apocalypse and you have to really consider who's running the show and what's really going on here. And Hey, obviously that doesn't make it okay. And it doesn't really lessen my frustration when I read it, but it, it shouldn't be surprising either at the same time. I know that in 2019, we should be, you know, past that sort of stuff as our society, but this is the society of apocalypse. So a little bit different. Now, Ariely actually gets singled out for some special training. I can't put that in air quotes enough. I know this is a podcast. You can't see my fingers in the air, but they are in the air. Now, what happens to her during that actually leads to something very critical that happens during a mission that she's on with Big Barda. Now, keeping in mind that nothing, nobody knows what's really going on behind those closed doors. Now, it's a moment where you sort of realize you can only push someone so far that is the this is the quintessential moment where that happens now one other thing that was really tough for me 
when I was reading this issue, and it actually happens around this time, is how subservient Big Barda is. And, I mean, after reading Mr. Miracle, it's really hard to see her in that light. I mean, you see her propped up so much in that book and how strong she is, and she's strong in this too. But to see her take a backseat to any other woman, or anyone for that matter, is really, really difficult after reading Mr. Miracle. That's my problem, not anybody else's problem. Okay, unless you feel the same way. And I'm not even sure I'd call it a problem. It was just a little bit difficult for me to get past that. My hang-up, don't worry about that. Now, my favorite part about this book, though, had to be the art because, man, it reminded me so much of Jack Kirby and the New Gods. I actually kept getting more and more nostalgic with every page. I almost had to flip back to make sure that they didn't like use Kirby's art at certain points of this book, especially early on, because seriously, what Adriana Mello does in this book is is absolutely 100% amazing. Then you pair that with the cover, cover from Mitch Garrods, it's like ridiculous how great that combination is. Now, the ending really makes me want to keep going with the story, though, and see what the fallout might be or may not be from what happens in that last encounter. And either way, you kind of know, you kind of at least hope that the Furies are going to get their moment, whether it be with Darkseid or deciding to break with him. So we'll find out what happens there. Right now, this is a pickup for me. I can't really put this in the poll box just yet. I'm thinking it will be eventually, though. I do love these characters. I do like that they're putting the spotlight on the ladies' apocalypse. I think that that's a little bit different. And we'll see how it goes in the next couple of issues. Going to get a little bit of vindication now with vindication number one from Top Cow and Image Comics. M.D. Marie doing the writing, also co-created the story with Matt Hawkins of Top Cow. Carlos Miko on the pencils. Demma Jr. on the inks. Thiago Goncalves on the colors. And Troy Piteri on the letters. Now, this is a kind of a crime story that centers around Turn Washington, which is a cool name, by the way. A man convicted of murder who's released after 10 years when the evidence is reexamined in his case. Now, the man who can't let this go is Detective Chip Christopher, who first worked on the case. Matter of fact, confronts the guy right when he gets out of prison. Now, it's clear from the start of this book that Detective Christopher is not going to be able to let this go anytime soon. But, I mean, it's Los Angeles. New murder cases happen all the time, and one certainly happens in this book. Now, he gets not only a new case, but also a new partner as well. And I really liked Detective Maggie Cruz. There was just something about her where she knew how good she was, didn't feel like she needed to brag about it either, either though. She just did her work and just let that be enough. I loved that about her. Very accomplished, focused, but clearly frustrated with Christopher's lack of attention to their current case. It's clear that he's distracted, his mind is somewhere else, and she knows it. Now, Christopher becomes much more interested in the case, though, once he finds out who the victim is and what's really going And I shouldn't say what's really going on here, what may be going on here. Now, he has a lot of pressure on him, though, from a couple of different angles, which, again, I won't spoil for you. But he ends up doing something very questionable, or it looks like he's done something very questionable. We need to figure out how that plays out, actually. Now, he does end up receiving some evidence about this current case that he's, that he's working at the end of this story, and well, at the end of this issue, anyway. That may or may not be evidence at all, quite frankly, so we'll have to find out again where that goes. Now, there were a lot, 
and I mean a lot of tropes in this book when it comes to crime stories and detective stories, police stories. It did feel a bit like an old school cop show or movie. And I'm talking about like 70s, 80s more than anything. Now, if you loved those, then you'll definitely be into this book. If you didn't, I'm not saying you won't be into this book, but you'll be into it a lot more if you enjoyed that kind of those kinds of shows and movies. Now, my biggest hang up here, though, is that I'm pretty sure I know who killed the victim in the new case and what the motive is. I'm not sure how I'm going to be able to shake that. My question now is how many issues before everybody else figured this out, figures this out, and will they do actually do anything about it? Now, the art was very, very strong and detailed in this book. As a matter of fact, there's dim lighting throughout, which I thought really set the tone for me anyway for some reason. And it seemed to follow Detective Christopher wherever he went. And the shading seemed to get a little bit darker than other... And I don't know if this is a coincidence or not. Darker at other times, maybe when he was doing something a little bit shady or that seemed a little bit shady. It just seemed like that to me. I don't know if that was on purpose or not, but at least it seemed that way to me. And it sort of made sense with the flow of the story. Now, this book has a chance to really throw me a big twist. And I'm going to need some doubt to be placed on my conclusion in order to continue with the story. Again, nothing wrong with the way that it's written out. Like we, the, the thought bubbles are literally that, thought bubbles that come out of what is in their brain. I do love that. It's not just like a monologue type of situation. It's what their brain is thinking at the time. And that's something you don't see hardly ever in comics now. So I did really love that. There's a lot to love about Vindication, number one from Top Cow and Image. Just not ready to add it to the poll box once again just yet. This is a pickup for me. You're going to want to read this first issue, draw your own conclusion, and see what you think. It's going to do it for what we're reading. Up next, going to go to the special big game preview of Hannah from Amazon Studios. We'll talk about the first episode with spoilers next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, I'm Melanie Scrifano. I play Winona Earp, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. It was available for 24 hours after the big game and the big win by the Patriots. And let's see if it was a big win for Amazon Prime Video as well. Hannah is the brand new series. It's going to be coming out in March. But the first episode was available for 24 hours. And we got to get a chance to check it out. It follows Hannah, who's played by Esme Creed Miles. And it's really kind of a coming-of-age story about a girl who's kind of lived off the grid in the woods with her father and has no idea what's going on in the outside world, other than her father telling her it's super dangerous and she can never go there. How do you think that works out with a teenage girl? Now, what she doesn't know is that they're hiding from kind of an off-the-books CIA team who's very interested in where she went. Now, I should probably mention, again, first of all, spoilers from here on out, spoilers from the beginning of this segment. I should really mention that Dad is actually, who's Eric, played by Joel Kinnaman, kind of kidnapped her as a baby from the CIA facility with her, again, in air quotes, mother dying as they tried to escape this same team very early on in the episode. Now, Dad's been training her pretty much this entire time. But as a young girl, Hannah clearly has questions like, you know, what happened to her mother? What the world is really like? Why her dad won't tell her anything about anything? Welcome to being a teenage girl, Hannah. That's part of this. But, I mean, to an extreme degree. Two, I will add, by the way. And now she starts to sneak off. Again, no surprise with a teenage girl. But she starts talking with a local boy, which, I mean, I got to tell you, it turns 
the interactions turn pretty creepy pretty fast, especially since Hannah's portrayed as pretty young. She's about 15, 16, but she certainly feels like she's younger than that. And, you know, you could you could make the argument that, you know, socially anyway, she is younger than that because the only interaction she's really had is with her father and with animals and stuff. So Hannah has no idea, though, that her sneaking off has done something pretty detrimental. Her dad ends up telling her what really happened to her mom. And now that the, now the same people did the, that did that to her mom and killed her mom are trying to hunt them down now. And we actually get to see that play out a little bit. As you know, they kind of they kind of get caught by security at this satellite dish looking thing, her and this other kid. And while they're getting, well, he's trying to fool around with her anyway. And that sort of alerts because the CIA has eyes everywhere sort of thing. So now they know that she exists and about where she's at. And, you know, once the confrontation has kind of happened, they end up, dad and Hannah end up splitting up. Now, the interesting thing that happens in this first episode is that Hannah basically allows herself to be captured. And that was the first really interesting moment of what was kind of a slow pilot episode for me. There was a lot of tone setting, a lot of tropes in the beginning, a lot of the, okay, yeah, we've seen the whole dad sheltering the daughter from the world because the world is a scary place and there's somebody after her sort of thing. We've seen that a million times, right? Now, that's where this gets interesting, though. And we don't know if this is because she wants to see what the outside world is like and she feels like this is really her only way out or if she wants to get revenge from the inside out. Now, we see clearly, not just from the trailer for the show, but in this first episode, there's more to Hannah than just a well, being a well-trained young girl. We sort of take out a couple dudes in this show very, very quickly and very, very brutally. There's something more about her than we know presently in this first episode, and I'm thinking that's going to get drawn out a little bit more in the rest of these episodes. Now, there are many questions about where she was born, why she was taken, not just by the CIA, but by her dad in the first place. The problem is there wasn't much originality in this story with the dad, though, like I mentioned. And we've seen this before. There's also definitely a bond there, though, between her and her dad, and that's unmistakable. The chemistry between Esme and Joel Kinnaman is very, very good as father and daughter, but it's, it's not anything new. Like, you know how Logan... The movie Logan actually broke the new ground a little bit. Now, that's an example of how that story was told a little little bit differently with kind of a father-son dynamic, albeit in a different context. But you got to see it where it wasn't necessarily the, you know, the the, the sheltered girl tries to find out who she is. It was more like the, you know, you find girl who is sort of out of control and needs guidance and needs help at the same time running from a mystery group who really, really wants her back. And then it's Logan's and Professor X's problem to try and keep her safe and try and figure out what the hell's going on. That is the originality that I was you'd kind of hope her for from this. But here's the question. Is that even going to matter after this first episode? We also don't know why the CIA team is pursuing her at all. There's really zero context for it and why they even had all these kids in the first place. I can assume until I'm blue in the face But we don't know any of this information yet. But again, pilot episode, very, very slow start, but you have to set the stage. They might have set a little bit too much of the stage as far as the quote-unquote origin story goes, 
but that only time will tell on that and see how much, how important all of those details are as we push forward. Now, the trailer looks incredible. I th- I know you've seen the trailer already. The action, even in this first episode, it's pretty epic at times. And the stuff that Esme can do and the stuff that Hannah brings to the table here is pretty great. And she's great as Hannah. And I'm really hoping that having a few of these questions answered in the next couple of episodes when they come out in March in this story will make things more compelling for the rest of the season. I kind of think that's where we're going to go. I mean, think about it. If you were a Seinfeld fan, and and I know this this is an analogy that not everybody's going to necessarily know, but the first episode of Seinfeld was not the best. It was a very slow pilot. Wasn't really that funny, if we're being honest. I mean, you can at me on that if you want, but it really wasn't. But look how great that turned out. So a slow first episode that doesn't really give you much can turn into something spectacular if it's done properly. And based on the other things that we've seen and based on the little bits and pieces that we do get in this pilot, I definitely have high hopes for this. We will be revisiting this once more of the show comes out in March, but I want to see more of this first season of Hannah on Amazon Prime Video and see if it ends up being as good as the trailer promises that it's going to be. That's going to do it for my spoiler-filled review of Hannah from Amazon Prime Video. Up next, we'll get to some nerd news on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, this is Wynn Everett, and I'm from Marvel's Agent Carter, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. A lot of talk about the small screen this week for TCA. It is time for nerd news. Yes, the Television Critics Association's kind of like winter meetings or winter press tour happened this past week. There was some news of note that came out of it in the nerd world. Let's start with all things Marvel. So it looks like, first of all, Legion is going to be ending at FX after three seasons. Now, that I say at FX because there's varying reports saying that it could be redeveloped by Marvel at some point, TV line breaking the news first about Legion being canceled, and the fact that this actually came off of Twitter, that Professor X is actually coming to Legion in Season 3. will be played by Harry Lloyd, who, of course, you remember from Season 1 of Game of Thrones. Stephanie Corneliolison, I butchered the hell out of that name, I'm sure. You remember her from Mr. Robot. She's going to be playing... David's mother. Now, Professor X is going to be in the third episode of the final season. We know that. And the final season will premiere in June. As far as Legion goes, though, I mean, how much further could this have really gone anyway? I think that it it was just so out there and so different, and it was such an encapsulating story that I'm not sure it needed to go much further than it has. And it's not because it wasn't good, but because you tend to stretch things a little bit too far sometimes, and I will use Mr. Robot as a perfect example of that since we're on the subject. I think Mr. Robot could have ended after two seasons and been fine. I'm not saying it's been bad, but there's definitely been a decline in Mr. Robot since the brilliance that was season one. Let's just face facts. I mean, season two was good as well. Season three, wasn't a huge fan of it. Do you want that to happen to your series? if you're anybody that's making television. Now, sometimes I'm a bit surprised that certain series have have lasted as long as they have, and they've been able to grow and adapt, and I'm not saying that that couldn't happen for Legion. But for me, it's just been such a good linear story so far that I'm not sure why you mess with that and try and keep it moving if you don't have to. I do think that having Professor X come on board for this final season is a cool way to close it out, though, so I do love that. 
Here's a bit of sad news, though. According to Deadline, the female-led superhero series that was supposed to be happening on ABC is now no longer happening. Now, again, this is another one that could be redeveloped at some point. We didn't know what it was going to be, though. Marvel really kept the info close to the vest. We didn't know if it was going to be A-Force or Fearless Defenders or another group. What we did know was it was supposed to center around lesser-known heroes, lesser-known female heroes with powers. Now, here's the problem with that. The word's lesser known. I've said a million times on this show that you have to bring series and characters that the average non-comic book fan is going to enjoy. And that's not to say that, you know, the average non-comic book fan couldn't enjoy a quote-unquote lesser known hero. But at the same time, if you don't, even, if you don't give them a name that they recognize or, or something that's just that something that jumps out, you're going to lose them. And then what do you have? Us as comic book fans can only sustain shows for so long by ourselves, especially on a network. If this was on cable TV, it would be a little bit different because there's a little more leeway there. On a network, the patience is less, the money is more, and it's really going to be tough. I mean, think about it this way. Jessica Jones, remember, was originally supposed to air on ABC. That worked out. That going to Netflix definitely worked out. I don't think there's even an argument there. Now, this for a network saying that wants to make you know, female viewership a top priority, I'm not sure that this is a super smart move, but at the same time, I don't know. I'm not sure that this would have helped them a whole lot with that. And, and if you don't have a good story, this isn't something that, you wanted to throw out there and end up being canceled after one season anyway. I mean, look what look at the outrage over the cancellation of Agent Carter, which only got two seasons. It's not worth it if ABC doesn't think that they have something. If this is something you could do on Disney Plus or something like that, then you get a little bit more leeway. Marvel retains more control as well, I think. So I think, you know, this is probably for the best, even though I am a little bit bummed about it. One quick note as well, Cloak and Dagger are going to be coming to free form. On April the 4th, looks like it's going to be another two-hour premiere, so we'll have to see Tandy and Tyrone are going to be getting into with themselves. i got to tell you, though, you want to talk about finishing strong in Season 1. I thought Cloak and Dagger really, really did that. And they had that nice teaser at Comic-Con as well. So, I mean, I'm happy. I'm happy that it's going to be back. I'm happy that we're going to finally get to see Emma Lahanna get to transform fully in season two and have to see what the powers are going to look like on the show. I'm actually really psyched for Cloak and Dagger. I can't wait to see that come back on April the 4th. Here is a, speaking of a female-led series, how about Batwoman? Looks like we have finally found out who the villain is going to be for the Batwoman series on the CW, and that is going to be Red Alice, although just called Alice. By the way, this report from Deadline, Rachel Scarston is going to be playing Red Alice, who is the leader of the Wonderland gang, just called Alice. Now, this is said to be basically the Joker to Ruby Rose, Ruby Rose's Batwoman. So that's kind of the description that they gave. Now, this might be a little bit of a spoiler for anybody who's not familiar with the characters. So I'm going to tell you to skip ahead, like 30 seconds or a minute, just in case you don't want to know this little piece of information. Does this mean that Alice become, are they going to make her Elizabeth Kane, her twin sister? We know that this is a thing. Is this going to happen in the series? They don't have to go that route. 
The CW has certainly taken some liberties before, and I'm okay with that. Is this where they're going to go with it? I think that's an interesting choice. It wouldn't be surprising. We also have seen the CW come out of the gate with the big villains right away, like having Reverse Flash be a part of the Flash. So that's that would not be totally out of the ordinary. Tobias Whale coming out as the villain for Black Lightning. This is not something that would be surprising at all. So if they decided to go that route. Now remember if that name sounds familiar, Rachel Scarson, she was Diana Lance in the Birds of Prey series on the WB, which of course was the CW beforehand. So I got to tell you, very, very interesting to see what's going to be happening at this point because this could be really, really cool. I'm, I'm really excited for the Batwoman series. And I think that this is one that could be really, really neat. There is one little rant I need to get off my chest, though. Let's take a break from TV for a second to talk about this. There's been a lot of reports lately, over the last month or two, actually, about Superman Henry Cavill having a cameo in the Shazam movie. There's various reports saying it's going to happen. It's not going to happen. It might be confirmed. It's not confirmed. Okay, listen. I need to ask a serious question. Why are we caring about this at this point? I'm just stunned that we still care. I understand that, yeah, it would be cool to see Superman on there. It would be really cool to see Henry Cavill back as Superman, but fans seem to be over the moon caring about this, and I just don't get it because so many fans, so many of these same fans are criticizing Henry Cavill every time he's appeared on screen as Superman. So why on earth is this such a big deal? I don't get it. Can we let this go, please? Maybe it's going to happen. Maybe it doesn't. Does this at all affect whether or not you're going to enjoy the Shazam movie? No, I don't think it does. So the fact that it's still being talked about, and maybe it's the media's fault. I don't know. Okay. And maybe I'm not helping matters right now, but can we please stop talking about it? Whether it, I mean, it's going to happen or it's not. And let's just kind of leave it at that. Okay. I've got that off my chest to feel better now. Let's switch gears back to TV for a second. And Nickelodeon, who surprisingly enough, is going to be teaming with Netflix for two movies. News first reported by Variety, we're going to get a movie for The Loud House and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. These will be animated movies, by the way. The TMNT movie will be based on the new rise of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Whether or not that's good news or bad news, I'll let you decide on yourself, depending on how much you like the series. Now... The interesting part in this, first of all, there's been rumors about a Loud House movie for a while. It was supposed to be coming out in 2020. I could not get that out of Gray Griffin at San Diego. I tried, but she was not budging on that. Of course, she's on the Loud House. Here's the thing. The most interesting part about this, I think, is Viacom looking outside of their own channels to do content. While it's interesting, it's also pretty smart because... I mean, obviously you want to keep everything in-house and you want to keep everything under your own control. I understand that. I mean, I think we're starting to see that now with Marvel and Netflix. But here's the deal. Viacom's had a little bit rough. Nickelodeon's had a little bit rough. How is this any different from them doing advertising? You know, getting fresh eyes on their products that might not be taking it in otherwise. You're just putting a couple of movies on Netflix. You're not pushing your chips all the way into the table. Now, remember, they're already doing the last Airbender live action series with Netflix. They have another animated series on there, I believe, as well. And things have been rough behind the scenes at Nickelodeon lately, apparently. Their their numbers, their quarterly numbers have not been where they think they should be. And you see stuff like Nickelodeon's throwing, is going all in 
on certain things. You see them do variations of Henry Danger a lot. You see a lot of Paw Patrol. You see a lot of these new series that not all of them are really panning out. Loud House is the last one I think that really, really panned out for them. Things aren't going swimmingly for Nickelodeon. So why not go ahead, throw a couple of movies on Netflix... Then all of a sudden, you get people maybe that haven't seen The Loud House before wanting to watch The Loud House because they saw the movie, and bam, where do you see that? You see it on Nickelodeon. It's just that simple for me. And Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles getting on Netflix, to me, there needs to be more fresh eyes on Ninja Turtles. Plus, a lot of people, I know that we're in a DVR age and a guide, you could set things to record and find out when they're on all the time. A lot of people have no idea when Ninja Turtles is on. I'm sorry. They just don't. They don't know when Rise of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is on. Loud House at least has played with enough frequency that you could catch that at some point. There's several episodes back to back. I have not seen that same frequency from Rise of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. So I think that this is definitely a good idea. We'll see how this pans out. Something I really hope pans out is this rumored Muppets series on Disney Plus. This is according to Season Zero. You might not be familiar with them. They kind of track new shows that are coming out and stuff like that. And they've gotten a little whiff of this. And the rumor, this is all rumor at this point. The rumors are that Josh Gad is going to be involved here. We're actually going to be developing this with Adam Horowitz and Edward Kitsis from Once Upon a Time. So if you're a Once Upon a Time fan, that's already a good news in your favor right there. The rumored title for this is Muppets Live Another Day. Not married to that title. Don't know what that necessarily means. That's just the rumor. Now, we're not sure if this is going to be some sort of theater or musical based on the creative team that's involved. This certainly Josh Gad's heavily has been heavily involved in that in the past. He's got that background with Adam Horowitz and Edward Kitsis also involved. You can't rule that out, but... I mean, anything has to be better than the last time they tried this, right? They really, to their credit, they really tried to do something different with the Muppets. And it started out pretty well, but the show just fell flat on its face. It was boring. It just did not work out at all. The jokes weren't landing. It was tough. And they, that's and whose fault that is, let's not speculate that on that here. All I'm saying is that Anything really has to be better than that. I mean, they could get back to the Muppet Show roots. This could be more of a situation where the Muppets are integrated into society and a more real-life thing. Hey, maybe they do rent with Muppets. Who knows? Something in a style of that vein. Musical stuff is really, really big. Wouldn't surprise me at all if this is some sort of musical thing. And would that be a bad thing? I mean, pretty much every Muppet movie has had a lot of musical numbers in it. So I'm not sure that that's... A bad idea. Why not do that? Especially if that's really, really popular. Here's a big question for me, though. Curious to see how you feel about this. Let me know at down and nerdy seven five seven. Should this be for adults? Should it be for kids? Or should it be one of those things that toes the line a little bit? Because I'm going back and forth on this. While I understand making it for kids, I think you there's already a lot of competition. For that, And especially with something as classic as the Muppets, I'm not saying that they don't have their fan base. You're competing with a lot of other things. I was just talking about Nickelodeon. They're right up there with a couple of things. Do you really want to put yourself in that position? Adults, you could say you can make an argument that adults are already familiar from the Muppets from our childhood. And if you give us something Muppet related, we're more apt to want to consume it than a kid would because we're already kind of embedded into that. But to me... There's a little fine line there right in the middle. I really like things that I can sit down 
and watch with my son. Granted, he's four. He has a short attention span. I understand that. But he's getting older and older every day. And if you're planning on having a series that's going to go past one season, especially on something like Disney+, Plus, where you're probably looking for things going to be lasting multiple seasons, why wouldn't you want something that parents can enjoy with their kids as well? Give the adults enough jokes that the kids aren't going to get anyway to keep us laughing and keep us interested, but keep elements in there that kids will love as well. Disney does this better than anybody, let's just face facts, with a lot of their animated movies, the Pixar stuff, Obviously has a ton of that going on. And while it is predominantly for children, I think The Incredibles 2 just gave us a great example of how you can do both. Even Warner Brothers is doing that with Lego movies. Lego Movie 2 is is coming out this week. You know that they're doing this. So I think it's a great idea to make this for kids and for adults. Whether or not that's what they're going to do or if this is actually a thing at all, we'll have to wait and see. It's going to do for Nerd News up next. Going to be talking about Aftershock Comics for the first time in what seems like forever. A new comic is out called Oberon. We'll talk to writer Ryan Parrott up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is writer Greg Pock, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. So every now and then you read a really cool book that just sort of stands out, and you, you just can't get it out of your head. For me this week, it was Oberon from Aftershock Comics. And as a matter of fact, to get the writer and creator here with me this week, he's also written some TV as well. It's Ryan Parrott. Ryan, what's up, man? Hey, man. Thanks for having me on. This is great. So before we get to Oberon, I know that you've, like I said, written for TV as well. I mean, Revolution, which I really liked and wish could have gone on longer. I'm sure you feel the same way. Oh, yes. Um, I'm curious, though, other than bar- budgetary concerns, what's the biggest advantage in writing comics over TV? Oh, uh, I mean, if you do it right, hopefully the medium. I mean, the one thing I always say that's super great about comics is that you can hide who people are. Like, you can, I could do an entire issue and have somebody narrate it, and you would never know who that person is in the reveal on the last page. You can't do that in 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 TV. Just so they're gonna, you're gonna hear the voice, you know. It, so you're able to. It's one of those great things of being able to hide people in plain sight, uh, which is really fun. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, and also I think uh, benefits is you know just like uh, actually I do this in like the just playing with the quirks of it a little bit, and and uh, page turns are fantastic. I wish TV had page turns like like comics does. Um, but yeah, I mean those are the big ones for me. Um, it just you know what I think the other thing is the inner inner monologue is so helpful. The contrasting yes. of of having a character like literally that's what Batman has made its made its money on is this idea of like this character who is grim and dark and doesn't talk to anybody except for you he just tells you what's going on in his head and he walks you through every element of of his process and his deepest inner feelings and and stuff which is funny because everybody considers him such a sheltered and I'm not sheltered but like sort of blocked off character but he's right. actually so, he's very open and I think that's what if you notice none of the movies have ever given us an inner monologue like like the the comics have, which is a why I think the movie feels different and sort of why Batman can feel cold and and um, and distant. And I feel like that's the thing that comics really brings. It can put you in the head of your main character in a way that 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 TV probably will never be able to do. Not not as not as not as seamlessly, anyways. I love that the page turns thing. That's that is such a good point. I never really even thought about it that way before. Yeah, I, it's bad. I, I've been writing comics for a while, and I was actually doing it wrong for about six months when I realized I was like, "Oh, it's evens, not odds." Oh, you- <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. Now, I also, Ryan, I love a good fantasy story. I think we all do, and and there've been a lot of good ones over the years, a ton. So, what do you think kind of makes Oberon stand out the most? Um, I mean, the way I've been pitching it is just like it's House of Cards with fairies. 
And I think that will that that's what I like about it is the idea of taking sort of the the duplicity and sort of the the the, pol- the sort of the political maneuvering elements of a book and the idea that like that mentor character that usually takes you through the fantasy world, you know, like 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 Hagrid does with Harry Potter in yes. the first novel, like, hey, this is Diagon Alley and this is this. Like, what if Hagrid was lying to him the whole time? What if it was just, you know, like, yeah. Yeah, other kids. Yeah. like that's where this all came from. And so that's what I thought would be fun was sort of subverting sort of that. If you look at, you know, you look at, you know, all those fantasy no- movies like, you know, Labyrinth and, and Dark Crystal and, and any of the Harry Potter movies and, uh, you know, Wizard of Oz. They always have a young kid at the center and sort of an, a mentor character that walks him through the world. And I just thought that would be fun to, to what if I put a character in there that wasn't forthright, someone that wasn't, didn't always have the kid's best interest at heart and, and, and. And you know, I I I grew up loving like villains. Like I love, you know, I I, I love Iago, and I loved um, and I love Richard III, and all the stuff. Those those sort of Shakespearean characters who are who pretend to to be good, but are secretly getting you to do the wrong thing. And I just thought that would be such a fun like smashing those two genres together could be a kind of a fun like a fun element that I hadn't seen in the fantasy genre before. Totally. It's funny you bring up Labyrinth, actually, because I don't know why, but when I first saw Oberon the first issue, I got this really big Goblin King vibe from him. <laughs> I really did. So how would you kind of describe him? Um, that, I mean, that, definitely Labyrinth was a big was a big influence. I'm not going to deny it. Um, that was such a because the funny thing about that movie is you watch it and like you don't really know who the Goblin King is or right. what's going on. You just got to drop him in there. It's like, he just, this a guy who plays with, you know, big glass pearls and, right, just, right. Yeah, and sings a little bit. Uh, but like, that's what I thought was fun. It's just like, I love that style of character, sort of that thin rail, thin sort of, um, uh, like, uh, like the, the closest I've ever seen to the character that I think Oberon is the fawn from uh, Pan's Labyrinth. Okay, uh, all right. So we'll just Labyrinth of Pan's Labyrinth. This idea that like they're there and they're talking to you, but do you trust them? Um, and that's kind of uh, that's the that's for me is what I was looking at with Oberon. Oberon is uh, he was the king of the fairies who basically got kicked out of his uh, out of his kingdom, and you'll find out why later in the book. But he is he's angry about that, and he's willing to do pretty much anything to get his crown back, even if that means lie and manipulate a, a beautiful sweet young child to do it and I feel like he feels like he's completely justified uh, but whether or not he is or not I think in the eyes of the audience hopefully will be sort of distilled over time but I just like the idea of a character that always sort of you know like that's the fun that speaking back to sort of the inner monologue that's what I liked about writing Oberon was that if he would say things that are sweet and nice and honest and then you would see and then in his voice you hear in the monologue he feels the exact opposite yes. and I just thought the contrast of that I thought would create a really fun character Absolutely. Actually, speaking of your other character that you just mentioned, one of the things I actually loved about this book was Bonnie's sort of infectious energy and spirit early on. I mean, she's just got so much excitement and want to learn, but at the same time, she's kind of led a little bit of a sheltered life. But you you pull no punches in this first issue about not only showing us that there's so much more to her than that, but her discovering that as well. What may, That's something you certainly could have dragged out a couple of issues if you wanted to. Why, why do you feel like it was so important to have her make this realization about who she kind of was, at least in a small way, in this first issue? It's funny you brought that up because in, in the original draft of the outline when I pitched it, it was she was she it took a lot longer. It was actually more like five issues before she realized like she was like, wow, wait, I've got like a bigger part to play. It was more like she was just sort of like on a really fun ride. And what I realized early, I was like, man, that's just selling her short. This is like 
one of the things I love, I, you know, I grew up watching Doctor Who and, and I, one of the things I always loved about the, that show is if you watch like any of them now, it's like they, the doctor finds a companion and within one episode, they're like, cool, let's go look at the universe. Right. And, <laughs> and I just thought, you know, she's this little kid who's been, who's lived in books, learned all these things, has all the, she, she's never allowed to go outside as much because her parents are very protective for obvious reasons. Um, and because she's lived through books, she knows all this stuff. The idea that someone would come to her and say, Hey, do you want to, do you want to see everything you read about and also things that you never thought were real and I just thought they've in a weird way they foster this perfect character who so is just like is that's her dream is to just go see things and so even if she's scared even if she doesn't know exactly who this guy is or trust him the idea of being able to finally do something outside of her room in her and her house I think is just too much of a draw uh and so I just thought there was something more there was like there's an inner bravery to her that I thought you need that in order for her to be able to go and do all of the crazy things that she's that that Oberon's going to ask her to do. It just seemed like it was it was it, it's a it's a good character trait, but also sort of a necessary one. Right? Do you think that the kind of naivety in her sort of leads her to the sense of adventure that she has too? A hundred percent. Yes, I think that naivety is in that trusting naivete that she because she's only ever been around her parents and her sister and i mean she's met you know she's lived in the world but but like everybody in her inner circle is super seem extremely trustworthy and extremely sweet to her and so this is a person who's acting that way so she doesn't have in a weird way because they shelter her so much they've actually left her open to being yes. manipulated by other people mm-hmm. so i actually 100 percent agree and i'm going to write that down because that's really important so thank you <laughs> coming up in volume two <laughs> <laughs> Awesome, awesome. We're talking to Ryan Parrott, who is the writer and creator of Oberon from Aftershock Comics, which you can get at your local shops and digital retailers right now. Okay, Ryan, here we go. I love the fact that, a little bit of a spoiler alert here if you haven't read the first issue, I love that there was a trash monster in the first (laughs) issue. So I want you to look to your right. The first object you see is about to turn into a monster. What is it and what do you do? Uh, it's actually a wooden duck with a uh, with a uh, like a clothespin line. That's for, horrifying. That's tor- and it has one. Bi- it's one eye's fallen off, and the other <laughs> one's left. So thank you for picking that and making that. I'm gonna imagine that walking down my hallway tonight. <laughs> I'm gonna be the reason you have insomnia now. The, yeah, the wooden waddling duck with a. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Oh God, I should have picked the Eiffel Tower. That would have been so much better. <laughs> that, that was the first thing you saw, though. That the the, 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 the your eye goes right to the duck. Yes, right to the design. Well, it's just it's the weirdest looking thing on this shelf, so it has to be. Uh, yeah, that rock golem was fun though. That was actually my friend. I was like, I need a better. I, I called it a trash. Uh, I was I called it a uh, trash man. She's like, no, 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 rock golem. I was like, that's brilliant. Yes, <laughs> yes, I loved it. That was so cool. I'm sure there's gonna be more of that at some point. We'll get into that in a second. Now, Ryan, when you're writing anything, I'm sure you'd agree that it's really important for your main characters to be interesting. But at the same time. Would you also say that the supporting characters are equally as important in a fantasy series like this or just in the genre in general? I mean, I think because whenever you tell anybody you're going to do sort of a fantasy comic book, I mean, the first thing they think of is Sandman. Um, and uh, or at least it's the first thing anybody was like, oh, it's going to be like Sandman. Right. And because if you look at that book, I mean, think about how important the supporting characters are in that. Just And it's become part, I think, of the of the expectations of doing a fantasy world that you're going to slowly learn about everyone around it. And that for every, you know, it's this idea of sort of like building out uh, an entire cast and ensemble and sort of, and then, you know, spending time to getting to all the, know them and then putting them on sides and sort of pitting them against one another. And I feel like that's sort of what most fantasy genre stuff does. Uh, so yes, I think, you know, like, 
figuring out like the Sir Thornberry on the first page and and getting into who Nicholas is and uh, and especially I think when you're using I, I think it's so much in fact when you're doing a, a book like Oberon which is based on you know Shakespeare and already has that world to tap into I mean there's people who are already like oh when am I going to see Satania when are we going to see Puck you know are we going to see the witches from from uh, uh, from Macbeth are we going right. to see anything from like you have all that stuff that people are expecting because it's Oberon if it wasn't him they might not be so quick to jump, but it, be, it already it, it insinuates a larger world with supporting characters, and people have affection for those characters already. So yeah, I definitely think that you know de- Puck was one of the first things I was thinking about. Was like, okay, we're gonna hold off on him because I don't quite know what to do with him yet. But I know that when we get to him, he's got to be, he's got to live up to those expectations. How freeing is that for you as a writer too? Because I'm sure that does. Do you feel like that kind of gives you this endless list of possibilities that you can work with? Whereas if you were working with something else, maybe in the real world, you're kind of pigeonholed there a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I, I read another book for uh, for Aftershock called Volition, which is sort of like my own world building thing. And that one has been a lot harder because everybody I'm building out of is sort of like it has to fit within the sci-fi is a little bit more constrictive because you just have there's there's certain, you know, rules of quote unquote science you have to follow. But with, with magic, you can do anything. And so with this one, I, I, I felt like it, it was a little bit more. It's not that daunting. It's it's fun. It's exciting to be able to do that. Like I remember when I was writing the third issue of this, I realized I could. Um, it's a little bit of a spoiler, but like I realized I was like, oh, there's a character. I'm not gonna say it because I'm gonna it. But there's a character that I. Uh, there's another fairy tale that I never realized connects to sort of the fairy world in a way that I had never explained. So that character ends up becoming a big part of the third. So like you said, it's it's the idea of of stepping into a world where you can build out the characters. There is. There are people who have played in the ideas of fairies and um, and and sort of the magical world that I get to tap into that I wouldn't get to because I was doing my own thing. It's called a tease, boys and girls. Yes, just, bad, just in case. Bad, a bad one, but yes. Yeah, hey, 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 it works for me. So um, let's okay. So let's talk about this for a little bit. Trying again, trying not to spoil anything. We here we know that her parents, Bonnie's parents are very aware of who she is and maybe even what she can do. But what we don't really get a whole lot of a hint on is how much the sis, big sister knows. So how much can you tell us about what big sis knows? Uh, I can just tell you. I'll, that's a, No one's asked me that, so I'll just say it. She has no idea what's going Ooh, on. Ooh, and the plot and, thickens. <laughs> what I loved is, and we'll get to this, but I'll just straight up spoil it, which is fun, is that the idea is that they brought that little girl home and they're like, oh, mom, you're a little kid. I don't ever remember my mom being pregnant with my sister. I just know that I had a little sister one day. And so that is what I think is kind of fun is that Riley is going to end up becoming a big part of the story going going down the line because she's she's sort of the one who she's going to end up being sort of the other side of the of the bonding coin where she gets pulled into this world of magic, but she doesn't actually have a purpose in it. She doesn't have she doesn't have some sort of great mystical destiny. Or, or at least she doesn't have one in sort of the prophecy of that this thing around. But what happens when that person inserts themselves into that story, and what happens if they end up becoming just as important as the as as the the quote unquote chosen one? So yes, Bonnie has a lot to play, but she does not. She has no idea what's going on until much later. It's funny because it feels like their relationship's a little shaky in the beginning, and you sort of understand why, given the circumstances. I feel like this is going to make that dynamic a little bit more, actually, way more interesting. Yeah, I mean, ironically enough, because she does not know, in a weird way, she's been the most honest with Bonnie. Her parents obviously knew exactly what Bonnie was and were being very, you know, they were cagey about it. But Riley always told the truth. And so in a weird way, I think she's probably more, probably as she gets older and realizes that, will probably be more fond of Bonnie than, I'm sorry, Bonnie will be more fond of, fond of Riley than anybody. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Let's go back to Oberon himself for a second. What do you think is kind of the driving force for him the most is it simply revenge here or is it really a hey i want this back because it was mine 
Uh, I think he's a man driven purely by ego. I think uh, anybody who gets who gets knocked down by the person that they love the most in the world uh, is going to have is going to be frustrated and angry about that. And even if they deserved it, uh, I, I think is the fun of it. And I, I think he thinks he's 100 percent justified in his actions. I think he thinks that uh, that everything he's doing is right and that he was he was, you know, it's like whenever you're in a bad breakup, it's like it's always their fault for those first few days. Um, but, you know, then you have a little time, you start to realize it, and you're like, well, maybe it wasn't. <laughs> yeah. Yep. I had a hand to play in that. So, yeah, I, I do. That's the, I think he's just driven, I think he's driven a lot by, I think I think when you when you feel like you've been scorned by someone you care about the most, it can make you do some pretty bad things. Absolutely. Now, Ryan, before I let you go, I wanted to, you know, can't we can't end this without talking about Milos Slavkovic and the amazing art in this first issue. Now, how important was Milos actually to the world building process itself? And is there something exciting you're looking forward to art wise in a future issue that maybe you can tease for us a little bit? Oh, I'm so happy you asked me that question. Um, yes. Uh, so Milos is amazing. I, so I had a very different aesthetic in mind when I, when I pitched the book, I was like, okay, it's going to be a fairy, but it's going to be dark and gritty and all this stuff. And then I started pitching the book to Aftershock and they're like, why is this dark and gritty? And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, well, if you're going to do the genre, you should do a version of the genre. You should lean into that and then have the story be the thing that subverts it a little bit. You know, you don't want to, you're going to be telegraphing your hand a little bit. And I was like, oh my God, they're hundred percent right. And so they brought, they brought Milish to me and they showed me and it was so awesome. Like he, with, he, he drew Oberon the first time. And as he drew him without any prompting of my own, he had the, the jacket open and all these goblins and characters were coming out of the jacket. Nice. I go, that's in the book, dude. So like, that's where that came from was just in those fairly early sketches. So he has been, I love, he has sort of, I don't want, I hope this doesn't sound negative in his, in his regard, but there's like a, a, like a, there's a classical sort of elegance uh, style to his stuff that I love. Like there it's, it's got this sort of, it feels otherworldly. And I really love that. I, I love that it feels sort of like uh, old fashioned. Um, and like his, and I think the thing that he has brought to is the color palette, uh, the oranges and the browns and the purples and all that stuff. He really brings such a great and interesting sort of like like I don't, I don't know. I, I wish I could describe it better, but there's like a really great sort of like glowing nature to the book that yes. I, I, I hadn't really seen in my. It's that's the best thing about being a comic book writer is that moment you get the pages for the first time and all that stuff that's been in your brain is like you know, all of a sudden on the page. Like for instance, Sir Thornberry, I imagined him as like an actual knight. I wanted him in like armor and all this stuff, and then he was like, no, no, man, he's got to have pantaloons. And I was like, pantaloons. Yes, oh, yes. That's exactly what you need. So he has been so phenomenal. And uh, we do something in the next issue that I'm super excited about. I've always wanted to do uh, where, um, eh, spoil it, let's do it. So they, there's a maze in the next issue. And one of the things we, that I had Mailers do is we repeat the same page of art uh, several times in the book as uh, getting lost in the maze. And that was something that he, that he, that took a little bit of getting used to because it has to be something that with different dialogue each time, even though it's the same art. Right. I thought like a, that's, once again, that's something that I don't think you could do in a in a TV show, but you can do it in a comic super easily. Just print the page again and change all the dialogue, and it just shows that they're stuck in this loop in the maze. And I just thought that was a really fun thing that we talked about and got to do in the book. So like that, you know, he's been phenomenal. He is as he is as important as much a creator of this world than I am, and it's just been an absolute pleasure to work with him. That's awesome. You guys need to see it for yourself. If you haven't already, make sure you get Oberon number one at your local comic book shop right now. Matter of fact, tell me you want it in your pull box. You can do that yourself, actually, in your digital retailers, wherever you're buying comics. Make sure you're picking up Oberon number one from Aftershock Comics and hear more from this guy. It's Ryan Parrott. Thanks so much for joining me this week. Thank you, man. Man, if Ryan Parrott's energy alone doesn't make you want to read Oberon, I don't think anything will. And again, I know that you've read a million 
fantasy stories a million different times. There's just something about this one, though, that made me not want to put it down, that made me want to keep absorbing it, and probably one of the best books that Aftershock has on the shelves now, maybe one of the best that they've had since their inception not too long ago. And they've had some pretty good ones, but for some reason, this one just sticks with me. Oberon number one, again, make sure you're getting it at your local shops and digital retailers. It's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to writer and creator Ryan Parent of Oberon for joining me this week. If you need anything more from us or you want to just find out more shows, do that. Go to downandnerdypodcast.com and make sure you always follow us on social media at downandnerdy757 on Twitter and Instagram and facebook.com slash downandnerdy as well. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly. Be good to your fellow nerds.